Welcome to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side, and those who lost. My name's Mark, and I'm joined by my best friend, Kevin. And before we jump into the narrative, I just want to take a quick meta moment to talk about the fact that this is the first episode being recorded after the official release of the podcast went live earlier this week um, with the William Walker trilogy. Uh, And to everyone who's already listening, you won't hear this for another six months or so, but uh, I just want to say thank you for listening. It's been a really cool uh, response in this first week. Getting uh, over 100 downloads in the first day was really valuable to us just in terms of validation and hearing that people are really enjoying the show and everything has been really cool. So uh, thanks for listening. Uh, glad you're enjoying it and uh, hope you're still listening seven or eight months from now when this episode comes out. The last episode wrapped up our three-part series on grandeur with people who feel either truthfully or not, that they are a part of some grand conspiracy that they are essential to, that they are a, a key component of. And now we're moving out of that into a, into a one-off, right? So we have a bit of a palate cleanser today, returning away or turning away from American history in the 19th and early 20th century to medieval England of all places. We're actually going to dive into the year 1381, so we've had only one episode outside of American history at this point, which was the uh, Mount Vesuvius eruption. So this is a totally different ballgame and something that I um, haven't researched as much in my, in my life. So I was really excited to buy far too many books and read about this. On the 15th of June, 1381, the 14-year-old King of England, Richard II, stood with a tiny group of his royal retinue in Smithfield, England now a part of metropolitan London, it was then literally a field. Standing across from him on this large expanse of grass, which still exists today as a large empty field, was an army of roughly 10 or so thousand rebels, led by a man named Watt Tyler. These rebels were armed with old bows and rusty swords, old farming equipment, just think of that literal, or that image of peasants with torches and pitchforks. But the King of England is, as a 14-year-old boy, staring across at this massive rebel army. And yet, though he almost certainly had a certain feeling of trepidation, fear about what might happen, and what had already happened, as we'll get into, he was probably within no danger of his own life. The rebels revered him. Yet the men he was standing with were in grave danger of their own lives, which is not what you'd expect with this standoff. We're going to discuss what's called by historians the Peasants' Uprising or the Peasants' Rebellion of 1381, um, more commonly known as the Watt Tyler Rebellion for the leader of the rebels. And it's a very interesting story that takes us to one of the first risings of those people at the bottom of society. And honestly, one of the first instances of true democracy, or at least the idea of what we would think of as democracy in the semi-modern world. Kind of like proto-democracy. Yeah, proto-proto-democracy. Okay. But you'll okay. see what, what, what I mean when I get into it. It's the beta test for the alpha test of yeah. democracy. Yeah, this is the alpha test of the beta test. <laughs> <laughs> so how did this happen? So how did this king get 
a part of this tiny retinue of soldiers facing off against tens of thousands of very angry peasants. And who is this Watt Tyler that is leading these peasants in this uprising? This isn't something that most Americans have ever heard of, though it is something that's more widely known, obviously, in England. The big issue we're going to have when talking about this is the fact that medieval sources are very bad at providing us the reasoning for why people did what they did. The fact that we even know that Watt Tyler existed and he was a peasant is exceptionally rare. Most sources in medieval history are talking about church events and chronicling really basic and banal instances of wheat harvests and things that are really not interesting. Most of what we know in medieval history is from things like legal records and charters, which, even to people who enjoy reading about those things, are boring. And most of the sources I've had to read have to focus tremendously on economic history. How did people's basic material lives look like? Because that's all we have. We have legal records. We have uh, how much stuff cost. We have, you know, garbage dumps that are archaeological digs. And through that, we can get an idea of how the day-to-day -day life likely was. But we don't know who was involved. So to be able to have a narrative where we know names of people is very cool in medieval history. So I opened up on the 15th of June in London, not modern day London, then just an empty field outside of London. But to really start this story of why there's this massive group of very angry peasants, we have to go all the way back, only about two weeks. Okay, okay. We're gonna begin in a little town called Brentwood, England. It still is a little town in England. That's one thing that's very weird for Americans, the fact that this story is 700 years ago and all these places still exist. Right, and right, they're right. still basically the same size they were then. That is interesting. It's hard. It's hard to picture. Like, so we're going to go back several hundred years to ancient Los Angeles. <laughs> totally different. Right. Totally right, right. different. But Brentwood is in uh, the part of England called Essex, which is um, in the very southeastern corner of England, um, right where the Thames River, which is the river that London's on, uh, empties into the North Sea, the Atlantic Ocean. Um, it's the part that's closest to France. And Brentwood, England is a relatively moderate-sized town, um, but it's the place where if any government minister had to go, that's where they went. And showing up in late May of 1381 were two men by the names of Sir John Bampton and John Gildesborough. These are what you would probably ease, more easily understand as tax collectors. They are there to get as much money out of the peasantry as they can. You can think of these guys as older men, they likely had uh, military careers in the past, and they are now occupying a very important government position, but also one that generally allows them to wet their beaks. These are straight-up corrupt men. We talk about a lot of these types of dudes in this podcast. Yes, we do. They are richly adorned. They're wearing velvet robes. They have jewels. Alongside them are two massive men who act as sergeant-at-arms, or you can think of them as bouncers. They are heavily armed, and their bouncers are absolutely enormous. This is a time period when the average man is about five foot five. These bouncers are likely over six feet tall and broad and well-fed. So the purpose of these tax collectors is to get this tax that the royal government desperately needs from the peasants. To say that these tax collectors are hated by everyone would be an understatement. What they do is they have John Bampton, the guy who's mostly in charge. 
he goes to the town of Brentwood and he demands that all the local villages in the area send in their their elders, basically. Their older, established, usually a little richer men to come to Bampton so that he can basically put them on trial and demand a tax. What he's not demanding is the initial tax. He's actually saying that they hadn't paid their original tax. Well, all the local villages send in their top men, and these men don't show up happily. They arrive with weapons and number about 100. They gather into the meeting hall at Brentwood, and John Bampton asks them why they had not paid their taxes. They respond saying that they did. He demands that they pay their taxes. They said, we're not going to, we did. He then threatens their leader, a man named Thomas Baker, who in this time period we can actually likely assume is a Baker. That's where last names come from. He demands that Baker be arrested. He even points and gestures back to his sergeant at arms and says, these guys will be the ones doing it. Normally that works. Normally the peasants realize, ooh, this, this man with a giant sword and armor is not someone I can trifle with. Right, my pitchforks are not going to win. No. But the peasants realize that, first of all, they're really angry. And I'll get into that in a sec. Right, right, right. And second of all, there's a hundred of them. How many, how many men does, does JB and JG have? Two. That is less. Two armed men. There's others, but it's two armed men and a bunch of monks, basically. Ooh. Are they like D&D monks, or are they like monks, monks, monks? No, I think tonsures and scribes. Okay. okay. <laughs> so they don't get like a plus three to hand-to-hand combat. Nothing like that, no. And in fact, it doesn't go well for them. <laughs> when Bampton demands the payment and they refuse, Bampton insults Thomas Baker, the man who's in charge. And Baker responds by basically bum-rushing him. They take a hundred people, and they just go and start a riot. They charge these royal messengers, tax collectors, and they chase them out of the town. And unfortunately, a couple of the men that were serving on the jury and a couple of the scribes are captured and actually killed. Now, we know that the medieval time period was a little bit more brutal, but this isn't normal. Riots are normal. Occasionally, the murder of a hated town official is fairly normal. But the uprising of 100 peasants for a specific cause like this <laughs> is not normal. Right. I love that it's like you live in such a time that it's things that are normal. People in power who everyone hates. Those people doing terrible things. What's not normal is something being done about it. Or something being done to this extent. Right, that too. After the peasants chase out these royal ministers, the first thing they do is actually retreat into the forest. They run away. They're afraid. They're afraid that they're going to be hunted down and punished. The next morning when they leave the forests, they all start to return to their villages. Remember, these are men from a variety of villages within about a 10-mile radius of Brentwood. It's not a particularly large area. None of the regions of England, when you think about it, them in like an American perspective, they're very small. I mean, England itself is smaller than the state of California. It's about the, about the size of like the Los Angeles area. Almost. Right. It's very small. Um, so when these men start to return to their villages, they, they, begin to, they begin to discuss what just happened. And they were emboldened by this. The fact that all of them were on the exact same page they were not happy to pay this tax, they, and they hated these ministers so much that they wanted to kill them, and they even killed them, the ministers' retinue. The ministers themselves managed to get away, 
And they begin to gather together forces. They have a meeting in a small village. Probably only about one or two villages originally are involved in this first meeting. And they begin to develop a movement. And this movement requires the men to swear oaths. And they have the very specific design to go around the countryside and find any government minister that had participated in tax collection or had been a lawyer or had been part of any sort of government. They were going to find those men who had abused their privileges and kill them, find their houses, burn them down, take all of the records that they could find and burn them. It's like peasant fight club. A little bit. So we do need to take a little step back and figure out why are these peasants so angry? Peasant uprisings are not uncommon, but to this extent... Coordinated efforts. And it's the coordinated efforts, yeah. Having, having, the, having the blood boil happen, have it, having it come down, and then they have a conversation that says, what if we did that but on purpose? We know it's coordinated and on purpose because the spread of the revolt is within days. And it's within days that large groups of organized men and women, we know there's women involved in these revolts too, are spreading throughout all the different villages. And what it, what's implied is that they're on horseback, which is not what you actually expect a peasant to be. To explain some of that and why this is happening, I'm, I'm going to take a little step back into some English history here. I'm going to put you into the shoes of an English peasant living in Essex near the town of Brentwood in 1381. Can I have a horse? In fact, you probably do have a horse. Yes. I'm going to make you a rich peasant because that'll ah, make you feel better. There we go. We are actually in the richest area of England at the time. This was an area that its economy was mostly based on the wool trade and cloth trade with continental Europe, though it was by no means the only thing that people did. Uh, people still farmed, and they still farmed in the traditional way. So the way that life worked in medieval England is loosely termed feudalism. Now, medieval historians hate that word. Like every single medieval history book I've read, there's a solid chapter on how that is a useless word because it ha it's too vague. It doesn't cover everything they need. But for our purposes, it is a useful term. And what it means is if you are a peasant, you probably live in a house that you rent from a landlord. To be a peasant means you cannot own your own home. You can own property like a horse, but you can't own your own home. If you own your own home, you're not a peasant. That landlord can be a, you know, a single knight that owns one little manor and the fields surrounding it. It could be part of a, a church, like an abbey, that owns a huge sections of land. Or it could be the, you know, the hunting lodge of some great duke who owns 400 properties and 50,000 acres. Yeah, yeah, I played Carcassonne. I think that's what that game is based off of. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in Germany or France. France. Something like that. It's in France because yeah. Carcassonne. Carcassonne's in France, yeah. So it doesn't really matter to you who your landlord is, but you have to pay him. In Essex, you are almost certainly paying your landlord in coin. You're almost certainly paying your landlord in money. You raise your crops, you, you move your cattle and sheep back and forth, you butcher the cattle, you cut off the crops from their plant. That was horribly said. So someone would... <laughs> you cut off the crops <laughs> from your plants. I'm gonna repeat that, you're gonna it cut is, that. No, I'm not, that stays in. Oh, fine. <laughs> Did you just try to deconstruct what farming is? A little bit. You harvest. <laughs> the word I'm looking for is harvest. An Essex farmer would harvest their crop. They would slaughter their animals. They would sell them at market, consuming some themselves. And then they would use that excess money to pay their rent. The way it used to work, and it did work in most of England, is people would actually pay 
using their crops. Their rent was in wheat or a chicken or three eggs at Easter. And very customary. People simply paid the same rent every, every year. Whatever, whatever coordinated thing it is. And it was never money. It was what's called in-kind. It's just it's every single holiday there would be something due as a tax. And randomly the Lord could say, I need an extra tax of a chicken. And you'd have to give him your chicken. You had no choice. Well, they kind of start to do that with money too. And randomly the rents would fly up and down and all sorts of problems like that were happening without any consideration of how that affected the peasants. The way the basic uh, towns and villages worked is there to be a, a main road with a little village around it, so your house would be in a little village. And around the massive manor house, which would sometimes be a castle, sometimes it would be an abbey, and sometimes just a little house, would be fields. And these fields weren't like cut up into uh, like little gardens or little plots that each person would have like their own like multi-acre section. They're actually cut into these long, thin strips of whatever crop, usually wheat, was being grown. And all the different peasants, such as you, would have little bits of strips of land scattered throughout this larger domain. Every day, the peasant would go out and tend to their crops. In a bad year, they starved. In a good year, they had a little extra money. That's not an encouraging swing between starving and being like, oh, I'm okay this week or this year. The most bizarre thing about this area and this time of history is they were dealing with an economic boom. And I say dealing because the economic boom was a cause of an intense level of friction between those in charge and those on the land. And what's more bizarre is the economic boom was caused by the massive death of half the population in the area 30 years previously. And what could have caused that? Obviously the plague. So in 1349, 1348, the Black Death in a couple of months had gone through and just wiped out about half the population of all of England. That's not wonderful. And what ends up happening is the society doesn't break down by any means. In fact, they were very organized in the way they like disposed of the bodies and dealt with the, um, the now empty buildings and emptying villages. Even though there was a lot of trauma from that, people you know, rapidly recovered. And what ends up happening is those who survived the plague are tremendously better off than their previous uh, generations. The main reason is when your life is based off of farming, and there's suddenly twice as many fields for you to farm, you have more money. Yeah. You have more wealth. Yeah, and when everyone is on the brink of starvation anyways, you're not, gonna, you're not going to grow less crops because they're less people. You're like, finally, we have a person-appropriate amount of crops. And for the laborers too, the ones who actually got paid, well, there's less of them. Yeah, they, they have more work and they're in greater demand. Therefore, they can charge more money. Yep. Almost instantly, the government responds to this by banning that, preventing the laborers from being paid more. They this actually is, cap prices. This is a video, or this isn't a video podcast, so you can't see my face, but this is my how am I not surprised face. They try, let's say, right. to cap the prices of how much people could be paid. They also try to prevent people from moving around. Now, one thing I didn't mention is that you as a peasant, you are not free. It's a form of slavery. You are unable to move from your manor. You need permission from the Lord to go anywhere. Right. Well, peasants realized really quickly that they could leave their manor and go find work because work was in such demand that most of the lords and knights and all those people would just turn a blind eye so that they would get their work done. So you have this awkward balance of the aristocracy and those who make lots of money and own all the land, they need work but don't want to pay for the work. 
And the peasants are benefiting from this, even though the law is very explicitly saying they cannot benefit from this. That goes on for about 30 years with the class of peasants, especially in the Southeast where we are in England, they're starting to expand their farmhouses. They're starting to own lots of property. They're starting to buy and sell property. There's a beginning of a market economy as their lives are better. Because it, it, is, it is really interesting to see like, you just watch the same bad decisions get repeated in history for so long where it's like, the rich are gonna stay rich. The peasants aren't going to go, hey, we have enough money to kind of have a decent life right now. That's gonna motivate us to like rise up and become the rich people or, or like cast them down or take their wealth from them. And yet the people in power are like, uh-oh, peasants, peasants aren't always on the verge of death. We better fix that. We can't squeeze them as hard as we can squeeze them. Right, but they're being more productive. This feels like an, a situation in which everyone should win, except they just have this inherent concern. Is that what it is? That if the peasants get this, then eventually they'll get autonomy, and then eventually we won't have peasants anymore? It comes from a couple different perspectives. I think ultimately greed is a major driving force. Um, the royal, As it tends to be. The royalty and the aristocracy, what they were lo really looking to do was to keep their standard of living and as the peasants gained in many ways by charging more money and uh, having a little bit more freedom, they did pull down the rich a little bit. Okay. But there's ways to handle that that don't cause friction. Right. I, mean, I guess this is also a society that believes things like you are a peasant because that is how God created you. And I am a rich person because that is how God created me. And it is unwise and unnatural to upset the natural order of me having money and you not. That's, ex that's exactly the way the chronicle chroniclers of the time thought. They didn't like the peasants gaining upward mobility because it upset the balance of the world. I mean, the world was broken into three groups. Those who uh, pray, the priests and the, um, the abbeys and the monks, all them. Those who pray, those who fight, and those who work. Those who fight represented the aristocracy, the knights, those who actually you know, had swords and armor and were supposed to be the ones defending the peasants. It doesn't really apply as much in England where, other than fighting the Scottish constantly, they don't have giant open borders. But still, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. who they were represented by. And then the last group was those who worked. And they were supposed to work the, the fields and give their crop to the lords so the lords could defend them. I mean, this is broken down in society. Those who work are 96 to 98% of society. Right. That's, that's everybody. That was divinely ordained. You didn't change that. The problem was, with these laws, they were very erratically instituted. They were set up literally the year of the plague. Like, they instantly were put into practice in 1349, right as everyone had just died. The plague comes back a couple of times. The first real big burst of this plague is what causes all these changes. It comes back every 30 or so years afterwards. So they come back with these laws, but most of the time the, the aristocracy is turning a blind eye to this. But then occasionally they'll show up to a town, call people forward and say, you, we have oaths from other people that you have done this and you have done this. And it turns into a, a problem where people are using the fact that everyone's breaking this law to settle little disputes. And occasionally the aristocracy is using this to just get money when they need it. 
So it's ignored most of the time, then occasionally it's used. And that inconsistency is infuriating. The law is the law, but I, I've seen this in history and other cases. When the law is in, inconsistent is when people get angry. It's because humans have an innate desire for fairness, despite the fact that it functionally never exists. Exactly. When John Bampton's in Brentwood, though, he's collecting taxes from the peasants. What's weird about that tax is it's exceptionally new and novel. The peasants were never taxed. They, were, they had to pay rent, but that wasn't a similar kind of tax. What's actually happening is England's broke. So one event that anyone who has a little knowledge of English history knows is there's this massive, long war with the lovely name of the Hundred Year War. And how long did that war go for? 116 years. It lasts from 1337 to 1453. That is a long time, and it's not a 116-year-long permanent war. It has starts and stops, and at various points in the war, you can think of it as a Cold War, where the two people involved, the two countries involved, which are England and France, are fighting over other places and not fighting each other actively. But it gets started under Edward III, who is Richard II, the king at the beginning, his grandfather. And Edward III is just above and beyond this amazing military leader. He's the grandson of the king in Braveheart, Edward I. So if you've ever seen that movie Braveheart, um, the two kings involved who are very different, he's the next king after them. Okay. I haven't it, actually seen Braveheart. I, I would recommend Apologies it. Apologies to the listeners who are now yelling at their devices because it's one of those movies that people yell at you about. It has its inaccuracies, but at least it's a good way of getting the basic outline of history. But there's Edward I is this epically you know, warring king, and his son is very not. <laughs> okay. And then his, the next king in, in line is back to being this epic warrior king. And he fights this war against France, and he tries to claim the French throne, and he absolutely annihilates the French aristocracy in multiple battles. The first battles with the longbow. I mean, there's a lot more known about some of these battles because of how important they are for showing the medieval knight to actually lose for once. But by the time the 1370s roll around... The war had pretty much stopped. The English had just started to set up garrisons all throughout France and hold the country. And the way they had paid for the war is by basically pillaging the countryside and bringing home loot after loot after loot. Well, when that stops, suddenly this war becomes absurdly expensive. So these peasants, who are enjoying upward mobility at this time period, are having to deal with the fact that their country, their king, is fighting this very ineffective war. Around the same time, Edward basically becomes senile, and his ministers really poorly organize the country. Edward's son and heir dies young. Before Edward, up comes the new king at 10 years old, Richard II. That's not the situation you want when your country is hemorrhaging money, it's fighting a war that it's actively losing at this point, and you have a bunch of peasants who are seeing their lives improve. The garrisons that England had were absurdly expensive. We're talking, in terms of modern money, like millions, and the economy could not handle that. The government had basically been funding itself through like merchant loans in the city of London. Some of these guys will show up again. There's really rich merchants in London, and they're giving loan after loan after loan to the government. I'm sure that this is in no small part the reason that we in modern-day London you have the city that is London, and then the city of London inside of it that is like just a, a collection of 
different guilds that are just psychotically psychotically wealthy. This is when the city of London is practically only the that, city of London, right. the walled city with the Tower of London, and there are a yep. few suburbs at this point that we literally don't know when it was founded because it's so old. It's it's absolutely ancient. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's time immemorial. That's actually the phrase they use in English law. That's amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. You can already see some of this friction. Well, when the government is trying to fund its war, and mind you, the there's what's called a regency over Richard II. He's, he's not an adult man at this point, so it's his uncle, who is um, Edward III's second son. He's in charge of the government, John of Gaunt. He's absolutely hated. He'll come up later. He's oh, doing his a, name is John of Gaunt. Gaunt is the hated. old word for Ghent, Belgium. Okay. So it means John born in Ghent, Belgium. Okay. But it sounds a lot cooler. So. Yeah, he does sound like somebody who would be hated. His, his other title is Duke of Lancaster. So okay, That just sounds like a douchebag. A little bit. He, he totally is. And so the book that I've used tremendously for this is uh, Summer of Blood by Dan Jones. And it'll be in the... the links the, in the show notes. The show notes at the end. Go buy a copy. It's very good. And it's the, the most like uh, like narrative-based story about this. And he just... He spends a long time discussing John of Gaunt, though I don't think we'll have enough time, as much time. So if you're interested in how you can be a terrible medieval um, jerk, read Summer of Blood for that. How to lose friends and alienate people, medieval England style. Exactly. The Regency is running the war badly, and they are, suddenly need a ton of money. Now, usually the people that they would go for money are the merchants, who, and the, what we would call... Um, the middle class. They didn't really exist as a middle class, but these are the people who own their own property and they're like the lower class knights and the merchants and the mayors and burgesses of towns. And they're called the commons. Nowadays, the commons means everybody. Back then, the commons was just those people who weren't aristocracy or the church, but were free. Right. And it's still only like 2% of the people. Well, the commons had been paying for this war for years and they were like, we're broke. We cannot do this anymore. We need to find a new way of coming up with money. Yeah. Well, they turned and looked at the people they were closest with, which were the peasants, and said, look at these people. Look at how upwardly mobile they are. Look how much more wealth they have. They're oh ignoring your laws anyway. We're going to tax them. Look at these people who have so much more than zero like they used to have. We could just take that and put them back to zero. Everyone wins. Everybody wins. Oh my God. Except John Bampton and John Gildersborough when they show up to try to collect this tax. Right. So there's three of them. Were they, were they commons? Uh, John Bampton, yeah. they're, they're commons. They're royal okay. ministers, but they are commons. Yeah. So they're, they're obviously hand in hand, those yeah. two groups. Yeah, I say, I say commons in kind of a colloquial, yeah. So when Bampton shows up to collect those taxes, this is the tax. And it's called the poll tax that angers everybody so much. So there's three of them. And to give you an idea of what it's like is a poll tax is a tax that affects everybody that's like of you know, maturity, citizen age. So in this case, it's everyone over the age of 14 owes the government Four pence. Four pennies. Right. Now, obviously, that's not a lot of money, but this is like way in the past. So four pence was equal for the poorest person to about three days worth of work. This is the first tax. They actually all, everybody grumbled, but they handled that tax really well. Okay, they, you know, we're fighting this war for our king. We can handle it. Right. The kingdom burned through that first tax instantly. So they were like, okay, we need another one. So they come up with another tax. And the first tax was what we would call a regressive tax, a tax that affected everybody the same amount regardless of how much you make. So they affected the poor the most. The second tax was actually one of the first instances of progressive taxation in the world. It ends up being like a really well done tax, even if it was a massive failure in the end, because they made the rich pay more and the poor pay less. 
and they actually split it up into like 50 categories based on income of how much people paid. And it was still, for the poor people, four pence. But that's the next year, and they have another tax on side of, alongside of all of the other things they have to deal with. Right. The government goes through that money even faster. There's still no success. And in fact, actively what's going on in places like Essex and um, the region called Kent, which is just south of Essex, is the French are, and the Scottish are actively raiding the coast with armed bands that are roving around the countryside, killing, looting, and burning. So not only is this tax not working, they're being attacked. These aren't full-blown invasions. These are like raids. But, but that's exactly what the peasants are paying fealty for. They're, they're paying for the protection of the knights and everything and actively being unprotected. The knights aren't doing their job. They are the ones who fight. Yeah, and, and in a unique situation where the peasants are up, are like mobile for the first time, they have the ability to travel the countryside, a lot more of them are going to hear about these incidents and hear stories from other areas about the poor use of the tax and how quickly the government's gone broke again and the fact that, oh yeah, we just paid this second tax and then my farm got raided my family was killed. Well, and think about that when you, in the perspective of like organizational development, well, these are people who are left to their own devices now, but they're still defending their talents. They're still trying. They're still forming militias and things like that. They have to now organize that themselves. Some king isn't just showing up and telling them what to do. They're doing it themselves. Those men in the villages that are competent and healthy and strong, they now know who's the good leader because he's led them before. Right. A lot of these men also had fought in the war over the course of the last, you know, especially the ones that are like 40, 50 years old. They'd fought when they were young, so they knew how to fight, they knew how to organize themselves, they're upwardly mobile, and they're very unhappy. <laughs> so that second tax is a problem, but it's the third tax that is what starts the rebellion. Now, what people had done to start to avoid the second tax, you see this with the second tax first, is they simply disappear. They disappear from the county records. They don't refuse to pay the tax. Suddenly, all of the young women, widows, the infirmed, anyone that isn't like a, you know, what we classically say in those times, a productive member of society, they either died of plague or had died a long time ago or they just shoved them up in the upper room and said they're not there. Right. So they don't have to pay for them. They would have whole villages pay at once, and the villages would figure out how much people paid. So they'd disappear people. Yeah. That starts to happen first. And then when the third tax comes up, it's even worse because it's triple the first two. It still has that fun sliding scale, but it's now 12 pence. That's a lot of money for these people. The population in places like Essex and Kent halves almost overnight. Right. Just in an effort to not lose everything trying to pay this tax. The level of ire that this has caused is becoming very, very acute. So that's why John Bampton and John Gildesborough received such a aggressive refusal. Because this wasn't when they were there to get the first tax or the second tax or even the third tax. It's when they come back. After the government had realized that people were evading the tax, they send in these guys to demand the rest of the tax get paid. Yeah, and, okay. So when they come in and say, pay your tax, and they say, we did, and they say, no, pay your tax, 
they mean like we know you're hiding people. We know you're not representing the amount of tax that you are supposed to. Okay, okay. So they have a point, comma. It's very clear to the peasants that this money is just going to be wasted again. Right, that they're, too. They're done. They're clearly done. The fact that it inspires this uprising is very intriguing because now we actually get to start with the uprising. They first start to target the main centers that had been the most egregious with this tax collection in the past and in abusing um, royal prerogative, basically. Um, the, the rebels are basically in two groups at the beginning. There's a group from Essex and there's a group from Kent. Um, if you look at that on a map, it, you gotta go to the very, very, very southeast corner of England and there's these two tiny counties that are the wealthiest parts of England. They are really close to London. None of the people there are um, serfs anymore even. They actually have a lot more freedom down there. This is actually the wealthiest part of the country. And these two rebel groups instantly go toward the centers of uh, like county records. So the first places they go to are, there's an abbey that I can't pronounce, L-E-S-N-E-S. Um, and they go to one of the main castles in the area. To gather their forces, they actually aren't particularly kind about it. So all these villages, they start to scatter their men about right after they um, sent those guys packing. And they say, join us or you're going to join us. If you don't join us, we're going to burn your house down. So join us un under your own free will. So no, without, no surprise, their numbers dramatically explode. Right. And what ends up happening as these men start to descend on these first centers of government control is you get these really coherent groups of people. I'm going to quote Dan Jones real quick because he sums it up better than I think I can because he's a historian of this era. So the revolt at this point, very early on, consisted of quote, sworn chapters or companies of men banded together by oath, led by natural leaders of village society, in close communication with other bands of rebels and working to a common timetable, which revolved around strategic coordinated strikes on selected targets. And as such, the revolt can be seen not as a spontaneous itinerant riot, but a carefully choreographed orgy of violence and retribution. They're not just going to find like specific abbeys and towns. They're actually have a list of people, men that they want to find and they want to kill because they had been so corrupt in the past. One of the first places they capture is Rochester Castle. Now, Rochester Castle is a classic medieval castle, a massive stone building surrounded by a moat that is just dominant in this city called Rochester, which is halfway between London and Canterbury on the old Roman road. And it's funny, you go look at, the, this isn't Kent, you go look at Kent, there's this one road that's in a straight line from London to Canterbury. And it's like, that's the Roman road. The rest wow. of the roads in the area are all squiggly. The Roman roads, they built in a straight line. So the rebels have captured this road and they go to um, the castle and the castle just opens itself. And they go inside and they burn everything. Anything related to wealth they burn, they take the guy who's in control of the castle hostage and they basically force him to be their puppet, like um, almost interpreter between anybody of importance and them, Sir John Newton. And they take all of the public records and burn them. So anything that had any reference to who lived where and how much people owed what and like uh, contracts of serfdom, all of that is burned. The goal is just to make it so that it becomes functionally impossible to track 
tax tax records. Exactly. And they release all the prisoners. The vast majority of the prisoners are debtors. Interesting. Which is something that oftentimes occurs in these things. They also release all the felons and murderers too. Yeah, well, you know, blah, 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 break a few eggs. You know that you know the old adage. It's not just castles they do this too. They they go to the local abbeys where most of the time these monks were supposed to be the ones who uh, prayed for people. They gave charitable donations to people. But what usually had happened by this time in history is the monks were simply just getting drunk and having illegitimate, illegitimate children. They were no longer doing their their jobs as those their who monkly pray. monkly duties. Their monkly duties. They were instead abusing their wealthy areas. And it becomes more like a frat house than an, an abbey. Like, is this, is, is this related to indulgences, that practice at all? Or is that a separate thing? It's, it's related to that. Um, it's not quite there, there yet. Okay. But this, is, this happens repeatedly throughout medieval history. There's a rise in um, dysfunctional abbeys, and then there's a movement to make them go back to where they're supposed to be, and then there's a rise again. It happens a couple of times. Um, the last one is the indulgence scandal, and that's about 200 years later. Okay. From the perspective of these peasants and why they're so angry is they are, they're fearing the invasion of the French and they're having to organize for that. This economic friction is affecting them. The royal incompetence is just grinding them to the bone. And so when they go and move on to these areas, they have very specific problems and they keep doing the same thing. And so when you read stories about this, it's very repetitive. So I'm gonna to try to avoid just saying what I just said where they burned all the records, released all the prisoners and just, destroyed the the building but what's really weird is that the rochester castle which was a royal garrison just opened so probably people within the even the royal armies were on the side of the rebels yeah and it's here at rochester castle and near that area that suddenly this man named watt tyler shows up out of nowhere in history just he appears and that's the most frustrating thing to me about medieval history as someone who studies like the 19th century mostly is we know nothing about him. It's because he's the Brad Pitt of this story. This is still Fight Club, by the way. All we know is he's likely a guy who puts on roof tiles. Hence the name. Oh, fair enough. That's where Tyler comes from. Okay. It's at this point that we need to return a little bit to the level of organization of these rebels. As... Dan Jones said, this isn't just marauding rioters. There is a specific group of people in charge. And I haven't mentioned everyone's name. I'm kind of focusing mostly on Watt Tyler. But when you read about this, a couple of other names show up. Um, John Raw, Jack Straw. These other guys are in charge, too, just like Thomas Baker was the one who started it all. So these societies, these village cultures, have people in charge who have been the respected leaders of society. And so these are the guys leading these various groups. And there is a very specific set of goals. I mean, they're, they're there to kill certain people. They're there to destroy the records, release the prisoners, all that. And they do that everywhere they go. And Watt Tyler is famous because he's pretty much the guy at the top. Apparently he was charismatic. Apparently he was experienced. He likely fought in the Hundred Years' War. He likely was an older man. That's one of the few things we know about him is he was an older man. Oh, so we don't know like anything about him, not just his background. We don't know. He just is a dude who shows up one day. So they begin to develop a bit of a sense that they're a part of something that could be big. These rebels start to have a very specific goal. There's this talk of egalitarianism that begins to show up. 
where they don't want to just burn the records and kill certain people in the aristocracy. They want to bring an end to serfdom, the servitude that people are legally locked into in most of England. They want to remove the aristocracy and remove the existence of it, whether by killing them or simply dropping them down to the rank of peasants and have everybody a part of the commons that they felt that they were a part of. And the weird thing especially is that all of these rebels have almost a quasi-worship of King Richard II. They see him as this guy who can be their savior and can guarantee that everybody within the kingdom can be equal, with him at the top and everyone else equal down below. Part of that, in my opinion, I didn't read this in any of the books, is anytime there is a bad government and a young king, there's always that hope that that king will grow up into someone that is better than the current situation. Because he seems like, oh, well, he's, he's not a part of the entrenched issues yet. No, we have the opportunity that that guy could fix it because he has the power. He has been divinely ordained to be king. Right. There's he no arguing that. Like, mm-hmm. the, that the peasants, even the peasants are like, well, God wanted him to be king. There's no, there's no point in arguing about that. So maybe we can just help create an environment where he sympathizes with us. Exactly. So the first place that Watt Tyler is focusing on, mind you, they're only controlling these two little sections of England near London, but one area they don't have yet is Canterbury. And Canterbury is in the far, far, far southeastern corner of England, and it's this, um, the place where the archbishop has his area. It's his palace. Um, his headquarters is probably a better way to put it. And the archbishop of Canterbury is the top church official. Well, with the kind of the, the overlapping corruption of this time, the archbishop of Canterbury is a guy named Simon Sudbury. He actually has done multiple other government roles, many of which involve the law and taxation. And so people don't just hate him. He's like their number one target. Watt Tyler leads them into Canterbury, and they just burn the whole town down. They just destroy everything in the exact same way as previously, doing the same things with the records. The archbishop flees and gets away. He was, ne- he was never really in too much danger there. But you start to see uh, a religious component to the rebellion because the, one of the first things that Watt Tyler does is he opens up the jails, and he opens up the jails this time looking for a specific man by the name of John Ball. John Ball is a very bizarre preacher. He is a, um, he's from the north of England. He's a long known uh, preacher who would walk around and preach this message of egalitarianism. John Ball is all about the fact that under the guise of God, everyone is equal and there should be no you know, lords and bishops and anything like that. And what Ball wants to do is create a, a religious setting where there are no longer any like abbeys or priories or anything like that. And John Ball is the one archbishop in charge. Just like the rebels want their single king in charge, this is the religious component that though there still be some churches and things, they're just helping the poor and all of that extra stuff, those itinerant monks and things, that would be rather brutally suppressed. But Ball had been widely known. We know more about Ball than we do about Watt Tyler because he wrote a lot. He was literate. We have some of his letters still, which is very rare. And he wrote in English, which is nice. And it's English that you can actually understand. 
Okay. All the letters are out of order and everything looks weird. There's a lot of random E's and things. Um, and the letter Y is used as the letter I. There's stuff like that, but you can read it, especially if you say it out loud. Um, and he was this bizarre guy because he wrote in these um, rhyming English couplets. And they were kind of a code that only the peasants would understand. And since we're so far removed from that, we're not entirely sure what he was talking about. Or maybe he was crazy. We don't know. But Tyler specifically gets him because now he has that religious component to his more political and economic rebellion. And you see this full you know, coalition of force that now turns toward London, where the royal government is set. So the two groups of rebels who are still separate, Watt Tyler leads the majority of them, they now go into the city of London. They go toward the city of London. At this point, finally, some of the royalty and the people in charge are starting to realize that something big is happening. When the tax collectors, John Bampton, was, you know, when he was chased out, he immediately said, hey, they're, they're rebelling. Like, this is a serious deal. The problem was um, the, the royal government had no forces. Right. All of their soldiers are either in France or dealing with the fact that Scotland had just started declaring war for the 50th time. And was raiding As Scotland is known to do. There's almost no soldiers in this area. And no money. And there's no money. This is a very bad situation for the royal government because there's now tens of thousands, maybe up towards upwards of 100,000 soldiers that are rebel soldiers, but soldiers really nonetheless. Many right. of them are experienced. Some of the, many of them are actual like soldiers from, prep from the war. And they're now marching up the road, the Roman road, in a straight line to London. No meandering paths for these guys. No. This episode brought to you by the Roman Road as the crow flies. <laughs> Such a dumb joke. As they advance toward London, all of the villages in the way have to deal with the same chaos. People are either forced to join or join up on their own. Um, all sorts of uh, buildings are burned down. One of the uh, specific groups of people that found themselves in as targets, not just the tax collectors, tax collectors, but anyone that had been like a professional legal informer. Um, you can think of them as professional snitches, really. They simply sat there and watched the people who lived in the area around them, and they would uh, swear oaths that people had been breaking laws. Yeah, these guys get stitches. <laughs> they got more than stitches. <laughs> They were very brutally killed and their houses burned down. Every single, every single village had these people. It's like stitches. Yeah. These rebels begin to move on to uh, London and the royal, royal government sends some messengers to them saying, hey, hey, stop, 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 stop what you're doing. The king would like to meet with you. The king would like to help solve this problem. Because remember, they're saying how much they are doing this for the king. Right. And the king at this point is with a really small group of people and he had left... Uh, Windsor Castle, which is that major castle, is like still like the seat of the uh, the royal government, which is west of London. He goes in and he stays at the Tower of London. The look on your face when it said the king wants to meet with them oh, was yeah. like, why would he do that? I don't think he really had much of a choice. Right. And there's got to be that hope that like, this is what they want. This is if maybe maybe they just need to be heard. Maybe they just need that face-to-face -to, -face to kind of decompress it. And and what the king is advised to do is like one step further than that. He's advised to not just meet with them and try to calm them. He's probably going to accept anything they say. 
So he's going into this meeting saying, I'm just going to say, yes, okay, cool. So they'll go home. Right. And then we can deal with it. But right now, I can't do anything about this. And also, I'm 14. That's not the best age for this situation. So the uh, this, this rebellion had been going on for about two weeks now. This entire event that we've been talking about, it's only been about two weeks long. So on the 13th of June, King Richard and his royal retinue, which is pretty much his cousins, his half-brothers are a little bit older than him, and a couple of old veteran soldiers who have Duke and Earl in their title, they all get on a barge, along with a couple of really rich merchants from London who are closely in the royal circle because they keep paying for everything, um, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is there, um, the treasurer, who is a rich merchant, and a guy by the name of um, Walworth. And these are people joining the king for this? These are with the king's retinue. These are hanging out with him, being his bodyguard and being his advisors. These are all public enemy number one for the Watt Tyler Rebellion. Absolutely hated. It's not a good look for the 14-year-old king. No, but he doesn't really have much of a choice. Fair. Um, so Mayor Walworth is very wealthy, and he's, he's, he'll be important later. There's a couple other major um, London merchants who are there. So you get this kind of this mixture of rich merchant, old-school aristocracy, and a much larger group of young teenagers. Because that's who's closest to the king. He's basically just bringing his buddies, plus a few older guys. So they get on a barge, and they go to a place called um, Rotherhith, which is a little, just like a place that you can land a barge comfortably. And when he gets there, there's this mass of people in front of him, all very angry, all holding swords and things. And his ministers tell him, do not get off the boat. Right. We are not getting off the boat. So they kind of scoot up close to the shore, and they all just sit there in the barge. And the rebels come up, and they give their demands. Well, the rebel demands are, we want everybody on the boat killed. That's what we want from you. Right. That's, uh, that's quite the first claim. And it's also a tough one to say, okay, just stick to the say yes to everything plan. Well, he can't do that now, right? Right. So he says, no. And the rebels are kind of stumped. They don't know what to do. And then right. he just turns and floats away. <laughs> yeah, because the rebels, the rebels are like, we're not going to kill the king. We're not crazy here. Yeah. King said no. He is, the, he, he is our king. We, okay, please? <laughs> just kind of think about what this situation must have been like, how yeah. tense the men on the barge were, and how hopeful the, the mob would be. Right. But yeah. like so, so much misplaced optimism there and their only way they're communicating is basically they're giving a guy written letters and the guy's like swimming out to the barge back and forth mm -hmm. communicating this way because they're refusing to go onto the onto land this is a pretty anticlimactic event it kind of stirs the rebels so as the king is going back toward the tower of london remember at this point the tower of london is a massive castle surrounded by a moat that's basically impregnable it's got stores of food that'll last for years that's where the king wants to be so the king goes back to there most of the London merchants kind of return to the city because they have because they have a job to do in the city. And it's also behind a wall. And it's also behind a wall, yeah. It means it's got a rather massive wall, and there's only one bridge into the city um, called the London Bridge, which is fortified itself. So after this, there's kind of some confusion amongst the rebels. But after a little bit of debate, probably among Watt Tyler and the other leaders, one group goes up to the gate on the east of London. The other group 
that's on the other side of the river, goes to what's called Southwark, which is the other side of the river, River Thames, from London and London Bridge. And the only way you can get into London is to cross London Bridge. The first thing they do is they immediately start to recruit the London townspeople in Southwark, which, by the way, is probably the grimiest place in London. It's not technically in London, but in that area, it's where all the brothels are and things like that. And so they recruit those areas, and they um, they release all the prisoners. They burn a lot of stuff down. They do the same thing. The usuals, yeah. But they then approach the bridge, and they start to demand entry into the city. And the mayor of the city basically says, open the bridge. Ooh. We have to, because they'll get across anyway. Yeah. Let's placate their demands. We know bad things are going to happen but we're going to have to deal with it. Right. That, there, at this point, it's about minimizing damage and, and making sure that as, the, as this peasant army enters the city, you want them entering as, a, like, as amenable as possible. So when they enter the city, they continue their basic pattern. Bonfires are everywhere of all of the records so and that scrolls. They immediately rush to the various abbeys and rich royal palaces and things, the main place they really want to get at is called the Savoy Palace, or the Savoy Palace. And that is John of Gaunt's palace. Remember, John of Gaunt, I didn't talk to him about him too much, but he's pretty much blamed for the bad government, and he probably is to blame a bit. But London hates him because he kept meddling in London affairs. Even though they're not the London populace, it's not super happy with guys like Mayor Walworth and those other you know, rich merchants. They liked them better than Gaunt, and Gaunt was actively harming the merchants because he didn't like that they owe, he owed them so much money, basically. Gaunt had done stuff like defended a knight that went into a church to murder somebody. Defended the murderer because he was part of Gaunt's group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's he, not, that's not going to win you. No, he'd done all sorts of just trampling things. He was just one who thought he was better, and therefore he can do whatever he wanted. Gaunt currently while we're saying this, is up in Scotland debating a, a peace treaty up in Scotland. So he's not even there. But they, one of the first things they want to do is they go straight to his palace and they just start to destroy it. This is one of the biggest, most lavish places. It's outside of the city wall. So they go through the city and out of the city. And the London mob and the Kentish mob, they descend on this place led by you know, Tyler himself and they begin to absolutely ransack it. They burn every rich thing you're doing, including things that are so expensive, it's insane. But the decision to open the gates makes a little bit more sense when you learn the level of restraint that Tyler and his other generals had on their rebels. At one point, a few of the members of the mob that are destroying this palace begin to rob the palace. They're not just burning it, they're actively trying to steal it, putting jewels in their pockets and, and things. Yeah. They, the leaders, take one of those men and throw him into the bonfire. And as he's burning alive, they basically call out, this is what happens if you steal. We're not here to steal. We're not here to riot. We're here to do this, 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 and this. They yeah. have a specific goal. Yeah, we are here because of people who have stolen from us. It is not, it, yeah, it's, it's uh, eye for an eye, whole world blind, that kind of thing. Like, we're not trying to perpetuate the thing that we are trying to destroy. So this is when there's a perfect opportunity for me to just say, 
um, a quote from Jones's book that really shows us what the thinking was among the rebels at this point. Even among the chaos and rioting, then, a clear statement of ideology was emerging. The rebels fixated on the cult of kingship, but despised all those dripping poison into the king's ear and spreading rot through the timber of government by their self-serving use of royal positions and power. And they saw themselves as the voices of true moral justice on a mission to restore the natural order of things to the realm. They were the true commons indeed. They were there with a purpose. Jeez. They do this all over the place. And they get from the Londoners a specific list of people the Londoners hate. The Savoy Palace, unfortunately, had large barrels of gunpowder that the rebels thought were not gunpowder. Oh, man. And at a certain point, the rebels, some of the Kentish rebels, descend into the cellar and uh, crack open all the wine and get, get absolutely sloshed. The bonfire's up above them. They're down in a cellar with a bonfire above them, which is a stupid spot to be, but some of the rebels throw in barrels of gunpowder thinking they're just something else to burn, and they explode, and the building collapses on a huge group of the rebels. And likely as a punishment for stealing the wine and other things in the first place, they're left to burn and suffocate to death over a whole week. These people were brutal to an extreme, even to their own, to serve this ideological purpose that they had. And again, that actually supports the decision by the city of London to let them in. Because the more... They're principled. They're principled, and the more that the, they could say, we're on your side, we're on your side, the more safe they'd likely be. What's also disturbing is as they're doing this, as these rebels are doing this, they're all screaming. There's a specific primal yell described in most of the sources where as they're doing this, they're not just you know, laughing and you know, going, ah. They're like screeching a rebel yell. And as night falls, and they're all camping out and looting the countryside a little bit, and a lot of them are starting to get very drunk, but not by robbing, by actually buying it. The Londoners opened up as much <laughs> alcohol as they could, and they had a giant party because, by the way, this is on a major feast day. This is on holiday. So they feasted after this experience. It's the Feast of Corpus Christi, which isn't really celebrated much anymore. King Richard is standing on top of his castle in the Tower of London, watching London burn beneath him. And they're trying to figure out, in the royal group, what to do. So they agree to meet again. Early in the morning of 14 June, the next day, the king and his advisors agreed to go to a place called Mile End, outside the city, and to actually discuss face-to-face -face with the rebels. Well, the rebels are in complete control of the city, so this involves the king and all of the people in the Tower of London. A lot of whom the rebels expressly want killed. Exactly. To move through the mob. Now, that's not a situation I would want to participate in if I'm a part of the king's group. Now, not everybody in the king's group is willing to go on this mission. Um, the archbishop, who had actually already resigned, at this point, and completely uh, and cowardly defected from the king. The archbishop and the treasury, two men who had been very explicitly um, pointed out on the raft the previous day that they were supposed to be killed, those guys stay behind. These are like the top officials of the country. They're probably like second, third, fourth command of the country. Um, so the treasurer and the archbishop, and they actually both have like two other jobs. They stay behind. A couple other people who are most at risk of assassination, they stay behind. So the king takes out this tiny bodyguard. 
It involves a couple of the same kind of group, a few veteran soldiers and a couple of young teenagers. But his mother and his sisters, they are all in the group too. They join him, figuring they'd be safer with the king than back in the tower. Because it, it sounds like because the rebels have such a known and stated set of goals and allegiances, it makes sense that if you are a part of the king's like family, and if you are somebody who has not expressly and actively wronged the peasants, you should be safe, and you're definitely going to be safer if you're near the king, because the peasants at this point clearly don't want to hurt the king. And the logic is, I think, fairly sound. Right. Early in the morning, after discussing what they should do, um, two basic ideas are presented to the king. One is, we do have some soldiers in the city, and our soldiers are very well armed and very well trained. We can probably get out of the city safely by fighting our way out. That's what um, the mayor said, because he was like, well, I also have a militia. Like, I can probably raise people to defend us. Not everybody's happy about this. So the mayor, Walworth, he... Like you mentioned his name, this is important. He says that, um, but the king's general that's there, one of the few guys that's actually like a veteran soldier, he says, no, you need to go talk with them. We need to go out and try to just play get their man so they'll go home, and then we can deal with this. Right. They all get into a bunch of wagons and on horses, and they move out of the city. They leave the Tower of London, they move out of the city. Now, the rebels kind of split into two groups. They're still more or less scattered and camped everywhere, but they're in two large masses, and one mass stays outside of the Tower of London. That's where Watt, Tyler, and all the other leaders stay. And another group of men who we don't know who leads them, which is still infuriating to me, we don't know who's with this other group of rebels, they go and meet with, um, they go and meet with the king. Now, during all this, remember, there are constant speeches by the rebels to each other. John Ball is giving his sermons with um, all these weird little rhyming couplets. So the people are still really charged through this whole event. And when the rebels finally get to meet the king, they send up a contingent of rebel leaders. And it does seem like at this point, it was a very good decision for Richard to go. Now on the way out of the city, they were swarmed and harassed and spit at and poked. And even the king had people trying to grab at him. No violence, but they're accosted on their way out to the point where the queen mother turned around and went right back into the tower hmm. and said and gave warning to the people back in the tower that this isn't as safe as we think. Right. So initially they're really afraid. But when they actually get to Mile End and these rebels approach the king, they do it with absolute deference. They kneel down, they bow, they speak in the most polite of terms, and they give the demands that they have. They're very political demands, and they are all serfs should be freed, so no one is tied to the land, no one is stuck where they are. Serfdom should be removed from, a, from the law entirely, limit rent, so that no one is being overcharged on how much it costs to live, basically set rent limits. Um, no longer having these little courts set up, like the one that had started the problem in the first place that were so arbitrary that they simply produce corruption. And last but not least, and this is gonna seem rather simple, but it's probably the most important one in my opinion, they wanted work and labor to all be based on contracts. Basically, if I say I, I'm a mason, so I make walls, you pay me based on a contract that I'm gonna work for you for six months and, you, six months and you'll pay me this salary. No longer any customary payment or arbitrary payment because someone's rich. People get paid for what they do. To me, these all seem extremely reasonable. Right. But at the time, 
but this is a massive overhaul to society at the time. This flips on its head the those who work, those who pray, those who fight concept. To our modern view, this would be a good thing because the more people are able to control their own livelihoods and make money, that, that's what produces a successful economy. And eventually, all of these things happen. Richard responds rather well. He agrees. He not only agrees, he says, I understand your demands. I will write up charters for you. I will put this into law. Apparently, he got a very positive reaction to that. Because if he had stopped there, I'm paraphrasing Jan Jones a lot right here, if he had stopped right there, that would have been smart. But he makes a really big mistake. And we don't know why my feeling, based on my experience with 14-year-olds, is... For the listeners, Kevin, Kevin is a high school teacher. I'm a middle school teacher. For the listeners, Kevin is a middle school teacher. Just literally have that as like a stinger, that stinger. <laughs> <laughs> based on what we know about 14-year-olds, he likely took that positive response a little too well. And he doubled down, doubles down on it. Right. And he says, not only does he agree and defuse the situation, but then he says, you have my permission to go around the countryside and round up any other traitors that have caused you ill. Oh, man. That, that is... is not a wise choice. Right. King sanctioned lynchings and vigilante justice how king sanctioned vigilantism is a very interesting concept dan jones has a perfect quote for this and i think it's the best portion of his book after richard makes this mistake and he says quote richard may as well have handed a blank charter to the rebels upon which they could write his approval for any act they chose murders became executions Assaults became punishments. Treachery became justice. Immediately, word of this returns to the Tower of London. And actually not led by Watt Tyler, actually led by um, a woman. The rebels move toward the Tower. And again, just like with Rochester Castle earlier, we don't know why, but the gate opens. And remember who's inside the Tower. It's all of public enemy number one as well as a huge portion of the royal family. The queen is in there. Right. The queen mother right. is in there. Uh, a man by the name of Henry of Derby is in there. And he's important because he is the next king of England after Richard II. He's also Richard's cousin. All of the king's sisters are in there. And royal enemy number one, two, three, four. But the two big ones are the archbishop and the treasurer. Hales, uh, Sudbury and Hales. Well, when the mob goes in, they destroy everything. And they find Sudbury and Hales sheltering for sanctuary, and they're executed. Almost all of the royal family gets out. Many of them are smuggled by the, the sergeants at arms, the men who are supposed to be defending the castle and open it up, who are unharmed. What they are able to do to at least do their job somewhat properly is they get the people out by uh, disguising them. In some cases, I'm pretty sure they literally take the royal people, strip them of their royal robes, and stick them in an army uniform, you know, like a soldier's uniform, to just get them out. Because at that point, no one really knew who, what people looked like, so you just put them in the right uniform, they're, they're out. Yeah, and now these peasants are now on the same team, legally speaking, as those soldiers. And my guess is they took the, the women and probably like rolled them up into carpets and things and like carted them out to 
just to get him out. So with that, the royal, most of the royal family manages to escape in the most dicey of circumstances, and the Tower of London falls. Without, I mean, they just open the gate. Throughout this, there seems to be no battle. It's just the rebels keep winning time after time after time. Seemingly uncontested. I mean, they were now actively given the right to do this. The wheels completely fall off the rebellion at this point. One of the first things the rebels do is they go and find the group of immigrants that they hate the most. Classic. No longer is there the control and the motives of societal change. That day turns into pure, unadulterated chaos. They find these immigrant communities of, of all people, the Flemings. For anyone who doesn't know, the Flemings are one of the components of Belgium. Right. They're like the, they're basically the Dutch. Sorry, Flemings, you probably are very mad at me for saying that. <laughs> but they speak Dutch, and they were um, merchants that had come from northern Holland, what, north part of Holland, and settled and were in active competition with special rights in the city of London. So the city of London, people hated them, so they murdered them all. Horribly. At this time, you start seeing uh, public executions. There obviously had been murders and killings of important people, but usually it was pretty quick. Now people are being paraded into the streets and certain street corners have been turned into execution locations where very, very bad executioners are attempting to whack off the heads of people, in some cases taking 10 tries with a rusty ax to basically behead somebody by hitting him with a stick enough times. This is a deeply brutal. You see... Even the merchant elite joining in, selling old scores. People would try to round up a mob to go to the, their rival's house and kill their rival. All of the coherence is gone. And it's Richard's fault. So they return. Not quite sure where Richard stayed, but I'm pretty sure he actually returned to the Tower of London again for that night. And they come to the consistent conclusion that the next day they are going to have to meet with the rebels again. They're going to try to placate them again. They don't really have a choice. Things have gotten way worse. Right. There used they, to be restraint. Are they, are they trying to walk back some of the stuff from the previous day? Is that the plan? Or are they planning on giving more ground? I don't think they really had a very coherent plan at this point. I they think just it was more just, we need to go talk. They just know that things have, things have escalated. The one thing that has changed is possibly... Um, because he caused the problem in the first place due to his own actions, is Richard takes command in the morning. He says, I'm going to go talk. I'm going to personally go out there, and I'm going to try to solve the problem on my own. I'm going to bring the royal retinue, but I'm going to do what I want to do. So the next morning, they go to a place called Smithfield, and that's where we began. A small royal party faces off against 10,000-plus Rebels with another whole group on the other side of the river. The rebels are everywhere. And the king is isolated. His capital is burning. Most of his closest advisors have been murdered. Anybody anywhere closely tied to his government has been murdered. Their heads have been put onto sticks. And over the course of the last day in the evening, were paraded around London, dripping with blood. That's on his mind. He watched it happen, and he must have felt some culpability for it. So when they arrive to Smithfield, and he's staring at this massive mob, who can imagine what's going through his head? At 14. At 14. 
he wasn't a experienced leader, obviously, but he didn't even get to see his father and grandfather, those great leaders, really do anything. They were senile old men. Or sick men. His only real ex experience is his uncle, John of Gaunt, who everyone hates. Who's not even here. And who's not even there. One of his other uncles is there. And that guy was apparently very competent, but that's nothing. That's just another royal guy. But this is the true apex because the rebels send Wat Tyler to meet with the king. And the king has his retinue flanking behind him. Tyler actually gets onto a horse and rides to the king alone. It's a very, very hot day, as hot as it can get in England, with, and he's wearing a woolen cap. And Watt Tyler rides up wearing this hot woolen cap. And to give you an idea of kind of how brazen he was, he doesn't take off the cap. You're supposed to remove anything on your head in front of the king. And he was clearly sweating and miserable because of the cap. He rides up on the horse, and the first thing he does, Watt Tyler, is take out his dagger. And with the dagger in one hand, he awkwardly gets off his horse with the other. So he's standing in front of the king, armed. With a hat on. With a hat on and fully armed. Those two things are probably equally as egregious at the time. Now, where they're located, Smithfield, it's known as a place of slaughter. It's where people would go to butcher their animals. And it's actually the place where William Wallace of Scotland, the guy from Braveheart, was drawn and quartered. Spoilers. So this is a place that's known for violence. This is where the public executions are held. Now, the reason that Watt Tyler had come out is actually the mayor, Mayor Walworth, had called him out and said, we want to talk to you. This has gone on too long. We want to talk to you. And Tyler does. He comes right out to them alone. Keeps his hood on, takes out his dagger, awkwardly gets off his horse. The first thing he does once he gets off his horse is he does this deliberately insulting half curtsy. Now, we think of curtsy as a classically like a feminine thing. But back then, you, you curtsied. Men did it too. Um, and he does this little like fake little half curtsy thing. And then he walks up to the king with a dagger in one hand and with his other hand shakes the king's hand. He's just going for like the hat trick of things that will offend the monarchy. Pretty much. He shakes it and he's smiling and he laughs and he, it's like he tries to give him a bro hug. The king is not happy and he's, give, he's getting no deference. Remember the la yesterday. This is a classic Tyler. <laughs> yesterday, the peasants that, have, that approached the king showed all respect and deference. Right. Today, that's gone. The first thing that Tyler says is, I have 40,000 more companions that will come join, come join us. It's a threat. And the king takes it as a threat. But the king steals himself, and Richard responds with, why don't you go home? Like a pointed question. Why aren't you going home? Why are you still doing this? The next is where you can see that the wheels have really come off the rebellion because what Watt Tyler does is he gives, a, he gives the same basic charter requesting all the things that the people had done the previous day. And Richard agrees. But then Tyler goes off in this bizarre soliloquy of how life used to be like in England and how the peasants used to have a much better existence. They didn't. And how they used to have better laws controlling them. They didn't. But to the minds of these peasants, they were reaching for that mythological past that where things were better, and we need to return in this kind of reactionary conservatism to that. And budding through all of this is this egalitarian religious streak. Apparently, Tyler talks for a particularly long time. 
And then he takes the charter a step further. And he demands from Richard, he demands an end of all lordship and ecclesiastical property. Remove the entire aristocracy. No knights, no sirs, no dukes, no earls, no abbots, no archbishops or bishops. Remove all of that. And only the king should remain. And Richard has no choice but to say, fine, now go home. And they both just stare at each other. Because Watt Tyler has the momentum, but doesn't know what to do. Right. He asked for ridiculous things. And somehow got them. And he has them all. And Richard, he said what he needed to say. I agree, now go home. That's all he wants. Right. So he can deal with it later. Yeah. If he can disperse this giant crowd, stop the killings. So finally, the hood on Tyler's head, again, I'm paraphrasing Dan Jones a lot here, makes him feel a little too hot. And so he asks for water. Water is brought to him. He drinks it, swirls around, spits in front of the king. That's still an insult today. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, I, I don't have to be a king to be like, you're being a little bit of a jerk right now. And then he asks for beer. He does the same thing. And then he gets on his horse and rides away without asking for permission. You have to ask permission to leave the king's presence. This is just him testing the waters of what he can get away with. This is, right? This is him figuring out how much can I push on this king before he actually, like, tries to stop us. I can only think that he's trying to pick a fight. My guess he's probably also drunk. Fair. When he wheels his horse around and starts to ride away, the king's retinue starts to mock him. They basically start to yell at him for what he did. And Watt Tyler turns around and says, whoever's insulting me, I will have your head. So William Walworth, the mayor of London, says, I've had enough. I have the legal right to go arrest you for saying these things in the presence of the king. Walworth rides out to Tyler. Tyler has a dagger, which is just a short sword, basically, in his hand. And Walworth rides out to him. Tyler immediately turns around and stabs at Walworth. Well, Walworth was very smart. And pretty much everybody in the King's Retinue was very smart. And they're armored under their clothes. Right. Tyler stabs and hits the armor. Walworth immediately stabs Tyler in the neck. And then he stabs him again. And then... Multiple other soldiers of the king's retinue, including a couple of the young teenager valets, valets, they swarm Tyler and they stab at him as well. And so two men are at least to get like striking blows with Walworth being the one that stabs him in the neck. The people in the mob are just watching this, unable to really see what's happening. And then they see Tyler on his horse, slumped, charging straight back to them. And they notice that he's clearly injured. The mob of rebels has no idea what to do. Well, the royal retinue, they get spooked by this because they're like, oh gosh, we're going to get swarmed. Yeah. So pretty much everyone who had participated in the stabbing fest of Tyler, they all turn and book it back to the Tower of London where another group of the royal retinue just stays near the king. There's this brief moment of one group of horses flying one direction and the single horse of Watt Tyler with his slumped body heading toward the rebels where no one quite knows what's going to happen. And in one of the most bizarre moments of leadership brilliance, from a 14-year-old boy, King Richard gets on his horse and goes straight toward the rebels. Not armed, not waving a sword, but as their king. And when he rides up to the rebels, he tells them to join him, follow their king, the day is done, and he just starts to ride away from the city. And for some reason, 
probably because with their leader dead and the moment lost and their king giving them as a group a specific command. And Watts dead before he can share what he has just gotten from the king. He's, he says something of treachery and then he's basically carted away. And I, probably the king even says, I, I agree to everything you want. Now just follow me. They do. These tens of thousands of poor, angry peasants who had spent the last two plus weeks rioting and murdering royal officials finally get a direct command that they can easily follow that comes with all their demands met. And confusedly and rather slowly, they follow the king out of the city. Immediately, Walworth is leaving. He goes back to Tower of London. And remember there were the two plans. One is to meet with them, the rebels, and the other one was to raise that mini army of militia and men-at-arms to fight them. Well, they activate Plan B. Right. Because Walworth is now, he's, he's, he's bolted. He doesn't know, I'm assuming he doesn't know that the king is now pied pipering the peasants out of the town. No, he doesn't. He's basically saying, I have to fight. Right. In the process, and very shortly afterwards, they basically lock the city back down and control it again, and the king actually returns, and most of the peasants just leave at this point. About half just leave. And the king actually knights all of the royal merchants that were with them, who weren't royalty. They were just rich guys. Mm -hmm. He actually knights them all. And so they become royalty, and they control the city. And for all intents and purposes, in hindsight, the rebellion's over, because Tyler's dead, and... The rebels, half of them at least, have left. But the rebellion does continue for a little bit longer. It spreads to the, you know, every other corner of England. And what's next is oftentimes called the counter-terror. Is once King Richard is insecure and he has a little army with them and the rebels have lost their momentum, they're still starting to burn down some of the towns elsewhere, but their groups are smaller and less organized. And a lot of the original rebels, especially the ones that were coerced, they all go home. And now, some of the soldiers from up north that were fighting the Scottish, John Agant finally signs the peace treaty, and they release a ton of royal soldiers. So now Richard gets to fight back. And let's just say he's not kind. They kill thousands of people. They draw them and quarter them. They send their bodies to the four parts of England. That's what drawing and quartering means. You, you cut the person up, and then you send their body else, everywhere as a sign. They do that with, with two somewhere between like 1,500 and 7,000 people. Around London, Walworth leads this. And they just go into every town and they start to say, all right, who fought in this rebellion? And everybody starts snitching on each other. And for about six months until the very end of 1381, England is just one massive conspiratorial paranoid place. At one point, um, a bishop who had also fought in war, it's like warrior bishop, named uh, Le Dispenser, that's his last name, Le Dispenser, he chases around John Ball, the preacher who had helped start all that, yeah. as well as chases around a huge number of rebels. And there actually are finally pitched battles between rebels and royal forces, and the royal forces just annihilate the rebels. And in, within about six months, the rebellion is absolutely crushed. But it all starts with King Richard simply telling that big, powerful Emboldened mob, follow me, I'm your king. And his plan to just tell them what they wanted so they'd go away so he could then retaliate later finally comes to fruition, and it works. Took him three tries, but it works. Now what ends up happening to King Richard is this was probably a pretty terrifying experience for him. Um, we know that he had a very 
difficult personality. King Richard will be deposed in 1399. And he'll be deposed by his cousin who had almost been killed and captured, Henry of Derby, in uh, John Agon's son, by the way, in the Tower of London. He probably took this experience in the wrong way. He was a bully. He was um, unwilling to devolve power. He likely saw his victory in this moment as something that set him apart. And he will eventually lose his kingdom and his life for it. And he's the last of the line of kings that stretch back for hundreds of years. That line dies with him and transfers over to his uncle's family and causes eventually a huge civil war called the War of the Roses. So we can see the personality of a king develop from this experience causing all sorts of other events in history. Now what happens to the peasants? Well, within 50 years, serfdom is abolished. But it's not abolished because of their uprising. It's abolished because it's not effective economically. They are, all of their village leaders that led these rebellions are executed. There is no major political change in England. The only thing that really benefits the basic peasantry is England, for the time being, does end the Hundred Years' War. Obviously, the war goes on longer, but there's a huge period of peace until the next king. So there's no more raids on the countryside. There's no more poll taxes of that sort for a while. And the government realizes that's not going to work. The life of a peasant does improve. But the uprising, like many uprisings, is a failure. Like practically everyone involved in a leadership position is killed. Yet at the same time, we can look back at these events and see the beginning of democracy. The people finally had enough wealth and organization and intelligence and organizational capability, not just organization, but organizational capability to form themselves into a functioning group of society that had demands and had wrongs that they felt needed to be rectified. Now, in classic medieval sense, they burned everything down and killed everybody. That's how they solved problems back then. Right. But we can see the development of what would become, I think, the world's true first democracy, which is Great Britain. Thanks for listening to this episode of Footnotes. If you want to read more about the Watt Tyler Rebellion, we have all of our resources listed in the show notes. You can click on any of those links to buy those books. Uh, it'll help the show out. Uh, if this is your first time, welcome. Uh, I'm glad you picked a standalone episode. Uh, if you want to talk about this episode, uh, talk to us about it, talk to other listeners, we've got a Facebook group. You can click the link in the show notes for that as well. And if you give us a review on iTunes, that would really help the show out. We'd really appreciate it. Until next time. This one has a very high amount of people killing other people, <laughs> not <laughs> volcanoes. People are, it's like guns don't kill people. Specific narratives kill people. <laughs> I'm so glad we started recording for that. Yeah.